This has been a rather lengthy series on the doctrine of salvation. We are, believe it or not, finally working toward the end. I think counting today, we have eight more messages uh, planned for the series, and uh, then we'll bring it to a close, winding up finally with the doctrine of glorification. Recently now, we've been looking at the doctrine of justification, and today our topic is justification and peace. Justification and peace. I'll begin reading chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father... Our hearts have rejoiced to work through the details of this marvelous doctrine of justification to learn that you have declared us righteous, though we are sinners, that you have done so justly through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you will again take our minds and Give us an understanding and an appreciation of this wonderful truth. And now today, the benefits and the experienced consequences of it. And may we go from here rejoicing in the thought that we have been made right with God. We are at peace with him. Encourage the hearts of your people with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the features of our pluralistic world is that we are asked to pretend. Your truth, your truth, my truth is my truth. And it works over in the areas of religion. What you want to believe is true, is true for you. What I want to believe is true for me, is true for me. And it's not just the world at large. Contemporary Christianity has caught on to this in a way that I think is annoying. We're asked to pretend. And specifically, what we are asked to pretend is that we're to pretend that sin is not damning, 
that God will somehow bend the rules to save people, and that no one goes to hell. The Bible plainly teaches us about heaven and hell, and yet no one ever goes to hell. Everyone who dies goes to heaven. All you have to do is attend the funerals and you hear it. And we have a new doctrine. I think it was R.C. Sproul who labeled it this way. We have a new doctrine in contemporary Christianity. It's called justification by death. (laughs) All you have to do to go to heaven is die. And if you die, someone's going to say it. You went to heaven. And just believe it. And there's something about that that might be momentarily comforting to the grieving or something, but boy, in your heart of hearts, you've got to wonder, how is it that everyone goes to heaven? The same Bible that teaches us about heaven teaches us about hell, and yet no one ever goes there. Hitler maybe, Jack the Ripper maybe, but no one who dies goes to hell. They all go to heaven, and we're asked to pretend. Everyone really is justified by just dying. And all of that is really nice if you can just believe it. But anyone who's thinking has to wonder, is it really true? The problem with it is, aside from the fact that the Bible is so plain on its description of hell as well as heaven and God's wrath as well as his mercy, The problem with it is that in our heart of hearts, we know better. It's after all in the same Bible that we learn about heaven, that we learn about hell, and perhaps there's even more teaching about hell than there is heaven in the scriptures, and the warnings about hell are graphic and they're horrible, and they're meant to scare us and to get our attention And of course, every one of us who dies wants to go to heaven, and we'd like to think that we will, but in our heart of hearts, we wonder, how is it that everyone who dies seems to go there? And the problem is, there is within every one of us some kind of a superior judge. We call it conscience. It's a judge that rules over everything that we do. The conscience has been called the voice of God proclaiming its law in our hearts. It's been called the shadow of divine judgment. But there's within us this inescapable sense that this is right, that is wrong, and that when we have done wrong, we are accountable to someone over us. There's something within us, every one of us, and it's just inescapable, that reflects the justice of God, his righteousness. And we have this sense of what is right and what is wrong, and we have a sense of accountability. And the Bible accounts for all of that in terms of the, our creation and the image of God, that God has left his impress on every human heart. And there is what, what theologians like to call this sense of God. Of course, there's a fancy Latin phrase for it, but the sense of God, this awareness of God, and not just an awareness of God, but with that, a sense of dependence upon God. 
And not just a sense of God, but there's also this seed of religion in every one of us. Since we have this sense of God and this awareness of God and the sense of dependence upon God, there's also this sense of obligation to God. And with this sense of obligation to God, there's a sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice. And with that, there's a sense of accountability. And with that, there's this sense of guilt that we recognize that this has been wrong that I have done. And there's a recognition even in our hearts that we're accountable to God for it. It's just inescapable. It's part of being created in God's image. We all have experienced it. Every man, woman across the world has experienced it. This is what accounts for the rise of of virtually every religion. We've got to deal with this in some kind of way. Our conscience that we have is not right always in every respect. Conscience can be misinformed. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 even that conscience can be suppressed to some degree at least. But the fact is, we all recognize intuitively, this is right, this is wrong. And we know that we have done wrong, and when we know that we have done wrong, we have this sense that we're guilty and that we're accountable to it. And I think it's been very rightly described as the voice of God proclaiming his law to us in our hearts the shadow of divine judgment. We may not see God, we may not hear him audibly, but he's left his impress on us, and we recognize this is right, this is wrong, and we're accountable for the wrong that we have done. And recognizing that the, what we have done wrong, there's this sense of guilt and this sense of accountability. And Paul deals with that at some length. You'll remember in Romans chapter 1, where he says that man's natural response to it is to suppress it. God has revealed his righteousness, and we suppress that. We recognize this is right, that's wrong, and we've done wrong, let's suppress that. Try to ignore it. And this, I think, Paul, what Paul gives us in effect in Romans chapter 1 is an explanation for the rise of every false religion. On the one hand, there's this intuitive recognition of God. There's this awareness of God and our sense of our dependence upon him, a sense of our accountability to him, a sense of obligation to him. And so we've got to have some kind of religious experience of some sort that, that satisfies that. And yet with this sense of guilt, we've got to have this sense of religion in manageable ways. And so we can suppress and acknowledge all at the same time. And this is what explains the rise of every false religion. And again, it's not that our our conscience is the ultimate judge. It's not that it's always right. But what makes conscience so threatening to us is that this settled conviction, I think, that we all have is that it points to a higher judge. The recognition that we are accountable, in a sense conscience really is the voice of God proclaiming his law to us. What you have done there is right. What you have done there is wrong. And you're accountable for it. And it's just an aspect of religious experience that's common to every man and woman everywhere. And virtually every religion is given to address that in some kind of way. There's a sense in which we are at odds with ourselves because of this problem of conscience that we have 
and there's a sense in which we are at odds with God because of the way that we behave, and there's a sense in which we sense that God is at odds with us because of the way that we have behaved. That's what we feel, and that's what we sense in our conscience. We know that God is, and we know that God demands, and we know that we're accountable, and we sense that what we have done is wrong, and we're guilty before him. Paul even says in Romans 1, at the end of the chapter, that we recognize intuitively that those who sin recognize not only their accountability, but the punishment that must come because of it all. And so in short, we are sinners, and we know it. We may suppress that, we may try to play it down, we may try to relieve our conscience by comparing ourselves to Hitler or to Jack the Ripper, and we're not really that bad. We compare ourselves to someone who is worse, and we feel pretty good, but the fact is we are sinners and we know it. We don't like the term, but we have a conscience, and we know that we have not always done what pleases God. And so we wonder, how can God accept me? And if I die, when I die, can I really go to heaven? And why would I not get the hell that I know I deserve? In those serious moments, at least, we all recognize that, and what we all want is peace. We want to find peace with God. We want to find some way to know that things are right between God and us. And we want to find it in such a way that it gives our conscience rest, puts it at ease, that in a judicial sense, everything is right between me and God. And in an experiential sense, I feel it that he's accepted me. And so we have this peace, this sense of peace, and the Bible speaks of it in those two dimensions. First of all, there's the judicial or this objective sense of peace. We call it the doctrine of reconciliation, that we've been made right with God. And we have that Paul has been Expounding that, as we have seen in these chapters at the end of chapter 3 and all through chapter 4, Paul has been expounding this doctrine of justification, and he has shown us how it comes about. And we come to chapter 5 and verse 1, and it tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reasoning here is simply that of the consequences of justification. Justification simply brings reconciliation. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, this is just building on and really drawing a conclusion from Paul's argument that began back in chapter 3, verse 21. You remember there, he has established universal guilt in chapters 1 to 3, and then at verse 21 in chapter 3, he begins this argument of how God can justify Sinners, how can a righteous God declare unrighteous people to be righteous? How can he do that? And he gives us this extended argument 
stated in compressed way in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 3 of how God can do that righteously. So chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what he's just established in the first three chapters. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. That is, it's given to them freely without any cost or performance on their side. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is, he has paid the price of deliverance. He has bought us out. He's paid the ransom and bought us out from under our slavery to the law and to sin. So this is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did he do that? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And his whole argument is God who is just, he's righteous, must always condemn sin and cannot make exceptions. But yet sinners now can be declared righteous because they have in their place a substitute who is a perfect one who has offered himself in place of sinners as a propitiation to God. He has satisfied the demands of God rendered satisfaction to divine justice, thereby redeeming us out from under the law's curse, and therefore justification comes to us freely and by grace. And so, he says, the whole point of this, verses 26 and 27, is to demonstrate God's righteousness in justifying us. Not just to demonstrate his love, although it is that, to demonstrate that he is righteous in justifying unrighteous sinners. Chapter 3, verses 27 and following, he argues that in this way the law is perfectly upheld. You who think that you can be justified through works of the law, what you're doing is pretending. You're hoping that God will lower the standard, that you're really not that bad and he'll let you slip in. Because you haven't done what the law requires. And Paul says this doctrine of justification doesn't disannul the law. It upholds the law. All of the law's righteous requirements have been fulfilled. Not by us, but in our substitute, who acting for us, fulfilled all righteousness and took the punishment of sin in our place. God's righteous demands of his law are perfectly upheld in this doctrine of justification. And in this way, God can justly justify unjust people. And he gets to chapter 4, as we have seen. In verses 1 and following, he offers Abraham as proof. If anyone could have been justified by works, it would have been Abraham, we would think. Paul says, what does the Bible say? God says, Abraham believed God. And he quotes Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And if Abraham himself, it's really a wonderful argument that he gives to the Jewish audience. 
If Abraham himself was justified by faith and not by works, then no one is justified by works. And then he gives us that stunning statement in chapter 4 and verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. That sounds like heresy. It sounds like you're accusing God of doing something that's wrong. How could a righteous judge declare righteous people who are unrighteous? Answer is, the law has been upheld. Justice has been fulfilled. It's been served in the person of our substitute, the Lord Jesus. And in that way, God righteously can justify ungodly people. And then chapter 4, verses 6 and following, he offers another Old Testament illustration. Here, the illustration from David in Psalm 32, after his sin with Bathsheba. He, and his confession, remember his repentance expressed in Psalm 51. We find it in 2 Samuel as well. David writes in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count sin. Here's the blessedness of salvation. I have sinned, but God doesn't count it against me. He doesn't impute it to me. He counts it to Christ. And Christ has paid the penalty of sin. And this is the blessedness. The sin has not been ignored. It's been dealt with. And it's been dealt with in the person of our substitute, the Lord Jesus. Chapter 4 and verses 9 and following then, he returns to Abraham and he makes the point here that Abraham was justified, Genesis 15, before he was circumcised, Genesis 17. And that chronological argument that he gives there establishes that Abraham was justified not only by good, not by good works, but not by some ceremonial works either. His justification came before his circumcision before this, this covenant uh, sign was given. So justification is not the result even of our religious rites and our religious performances. And then chapter 4, verse 25, he summarizes his entire argument that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our sin made his, his righteousness become ours. There's this great exchange, our sin to him, his righteousness to us, and there's the heart of the gospel. And God's righteousness has been established and upheld at every point. And this is the inadequacy of all of contemporary religion and the inadequacy of even contemporary Christianity, especially in the main lines. It sidesteps these hard questions, pretends Oh, God wouldn't condemn you. You've not been that bad. Biblical Christianity faces this question square on, and it offers an answer. God's justice is upheld. You are a sinner. You do deserve condemnation. Hell is what you deserve. But God has given us his son, and he has fulfilled every last requirement. And as we entrust ourselves to him, we have in him one who stands before God for us, having done all that is required of us. And God justifies us in grace, righteously, because of Jesus.
And so the Christian gospel offers a real solution. It doesn't have to pretend. It takes on the hard questions and gives the answer in Christ. Peace with God is established. Judicial peace is established, and we are reconciled to God. Paul says this in verse 10 of chapter 5. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. By what he has done, peace has been established in an objective, judicial sense. God is no longer against us. His condemning power is no longer directed against us because it fell instead on Christ. And we are reconciled. Even when we were enemies, he made us his friends. So there's peace established in a judicial, objective sense. But of course, as I've already mentioned, we want what we want is more than that. We want peace in an experiential sense, something that'll calm the conscience. We want peace with God in such a way that our conscience is put at ease and we can sense that God is no longer against us. Is that too much to ask? Well, it might be too much to ask, but it's not too much for God to give. And that's what Paul argues here in Romans 5 as well. In verses 1 and following, as I mentioned, he's dealing with the benefits of justification. And his focus, although he does speak in objective judicial terms, as I've mentioned, his focus here seems to be more on experiential experiential terms. So in verse 2, it's connected with joy and the hope of glory. And as we read on, it's connected with the love of God. Let's read through verses 1 to 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, now watch him explain and expound on the kind of peace that we have. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance patience. Uh, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So here are the consequences or the benefits of justification. God is no longer against me. He's declared me righteous in Christ. He's reconciled me to himself, and he has made me sense this in such a way that there's this rejoicing, a rejoicing in hope of glory and a realization of the love of God that has been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit. Peace in an experiential sense as well. God is no longer against us. Conscience can be at rest. We have the joy of acceptance, the joy of realized hope, and the joy of experienced love of God. That's what we want, and that's what the gospel offers. We want to know and to sense that all is well between us and God 
rather than sense his accusing justice, sense that he loves us and accepts us. Now, what's important to notice at this point in Paul's argument, Romans 3 and following, when he's expounding this doctrine of justification, what's important to notice, and this is an observation that Benjamin Warfield made that I thought was very insightful. At this point in his argument, he offers not so much an exegetical argument. Look at Genesis 15, 6, see? Not that kind of an argument. What he gives us in Romans 5, 1 is an ex- the argument, what Warfield calls, the argument from experience. Paul is not exhorting us in Romans 5, 1. He's appealing to our common experience. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not exhorting us saying, you ought to have peace or let us have peace with God. He's appealing to our common experience. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Simply, we have peace with God. We have access We have joy, we have hope, hope of glory, we have this realized sense of the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, coming to God on the ground of Christ alone. We have justice fully justified, God fully just in declaring us righteous, and our accusing conscience now has been silenced, nothing further is needed. And in fact, God has gone to efforts to make sure that we sense this in our joy and our hope and in his love poured into our hearts by the Spirit. And Paul's argument here is simply, wasn't this your experience when you first came to Christ? We tried other means. We tried our best. That's what we told ourselves anyway. We tried to be sincere. We did good works, morality, tried to behave ourselves, at least not sin in the big ways. We did religious works. We joined a church. We baptized. Gave our money to the church. We gave our money to the poor. We did all of these things, and our conscience still didn't let go. Have you done enough? How well have you done? Did you really meet the standards? And what about the sins that you've committed anyway? And conscience doesn't let go. And so we try to soothe the conscience with platitudes of God's goodness. Well, God is a good God, and he'll, he's a loving God, and he'll, he'll take me. It'll be all right. And in all of that, conscience never lets go. It's still accusing. I wonder if it is so. Have I done well enough? Have I really met the terms? And then we heard the gospel. We heard that God has given his son who would do for sinners all that he requires of sinners. He has assured us in the gospel that Christ is enough, that he has lived what is the perfect life that God requires, that he's offered himself in place of sinners. He's assured us that his, his righteousness is given to us and our sin given to him when we come to him in faith. And he promises us in the gospel that he will have us if we come by faith and trusting ourselves to the Lord Jesus. 
And so we come. Acknowledging our guilt, up front with it all, and pleading Jesus alone, and calling on God's promise to take us for Jesus' sake. And the first thing we realize is that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Isn't that your testimony? I realize that not all of us had a dramatic conversion like Saul of Tarsus on Damascus Road, but there's this realized sense of peace. And Paul is simply arguing that here in his argument of justification, he now gives a practical experiential argument. Hasn't this been your experience? When you came to Christ in faith, you came to God in pleading Jesus only and giving up on all of your own efforts, it's then finally you sense the love of God and the peace and the joy that he gives. And we sense his acceptance of us. His love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Just a marvelous expression in verse 5. Spirit of God come and here's his ministry. He's told us on black ink on a white page that God loves us. That's not enough. He has sent his spirit to pour out into our hearts a sense of God's love. Make us feel it. And justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that's what we get. Those are the benefits, the consequences of it. We have this joy of acceptance, and we revel in the hope that we have. And there's a sense of freedom because God loves us. And Paul's simply saying here, you know this as well as I do. You've experienced the same thing I've experienced. This is the common experience of all who come to Christ. Because God is satisfied and his justice upheld. Conscience is satisfied too. There's no objection that can be found. And in fact, in fact, God has taken measures himself to make a sense, his acceptance, and that things are right between us and him. Justified by faith, we have peace with God in a judicial sense, an experiential sense as well. I was discussing briefly with the elders the other evening plans for the rest of the series and mentioned that late in the series, I want to take a few weeks actually and look at the doctrine of assurance in a, in a way Assurance of salvation is something that we've come on over and over and over again throughout this series. It would be helpful, I think, probably just to go back and collect all of those and look at them all together. But we see that here. This is really Paul's point in Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Assurance is just the implicate of justification by faith. Justly acquitted by God... We're accepted, we're reconciled, and the benefits come. And brought into his family, we're made to sense that we are sons and daughters to experience God's love for us. And here the Christian gospel 
absolutely outstrips all other religions and even the contemporary expressions of Christianity today. It doesn't pretend. It takes on the hard questions. It faces them squarely, and it provides an answer. It tells us that God's justice is satisfied in Jesus Christ, and God is just in declaring sinners just because of the substitute that we have in Jesus Christ. And with that, conscience is satisfied also, and we come to experience peace and hope and joy and love, and we don't have to pretend. We don't have to make believe that God has cut corners. We don't have to believe that this will be true whether we sense it or not. But we see all the questions answered. If you have not learned to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, then you must know that God is against you. And you must know that there's no righteous way for God to accept you other than his son. You must know that God will not cut the corners for you. That he has offered in his son redemption from sin on just grounds. And he has told us and he has promised us that if we'll come entrusting ourselves to him, he will have us. In no other way can peace with God be established. Judicially, experientially. And if you go from here refusing Christ, one day you'll know it's true. Jesus is the appointed and qualified Savior, and coming through him, God will have us. And those of us who are trusting in Christ, we need to recognize that this is written for us just to revel in. This is given to us just to delight our hearts in what God has done for us. It would, have, it would have been more than enough for God to save us and not tell us so much about it. Then we wouldn't enjoy it so much. But he's revealed this to us just so that we can revel in the glory of the grace of God and live daily in the joy of rescue and acceptance and hope and the realized love of God. Being justified by faith, declared righteous simply by going to Jesus for it, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father,